Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Jeff, as always. Today, we have on founder of Film Threat and filmmaker, Chris Gore. Chris gives us his take on the current state of the film industry and also talks about his new film, Attack of the Dock. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, and today we have the infamous Chris Gore as our special guest. Chris is the head writer and founder of Film Threat Magazine, which has always had a very keen focus on alternative and indie cinema. Uh, Chris's commitment to showcasing indie films and supporting emerging filmmakers has earned him a reputation as, you know, kind of a champion of underdog filmmakers in the movie industry, which I think is really awesome. Chris is also an author, a TV personality, a filmmaker. He wrote the Ultimate Film Festival Survival Guide and the 50 Greatest Movies Never Made. And he has a new film out called Attack of the Dock. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Wow, I it sounds like I've accomplished something <laughs> with that with that list. Uh I wow okay, wow. If I if I didn't know that guy, I think he would actually knew what he was doing. <laughs> well, you know, God, how long have we known each other? It's been like I met you through my my good friend Merle Bertrand, who wrote for you, and that was years ago. In and, the nineties. Uh, yeah, in the nineties. And and the last time you were here, I think we had lunch at Threadgills, which sadly is gone now. So uh uh yeah, it's been we've known each other for a long time. Oh yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, the '90s probably a simpler time in the industry. But you know, independent film is always about upheaval in some form. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the Hollywood is going through some upheaval at the moment with the strikes and streaming is kind of tanking and box office is underperforming. I think that there's, you know, indie filmmakers. It's like ah, we're used to that. It's a Tuesday. Everything <laughs> is awful. You know, you gotta you gotta fight for those dollars, but um, Hollywood's getting a taste of it now, and and uh, it's really gonna be interesting to see where things where things end up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I always like to start with how people got interested in in this business, and I know you've written a lot about film, you've made films, you've done a just a, a whole range of things regarding the film. So, how did it start for you? When did you get the bug? Were you a kid? Were you a teenager? How did it start? I was a kid, and it was. I think it was the movie Star Wars when I first saw Star Wars in 1977 in a theater when it first opened. Uh, I just saw it the first week it opened. It blew my mind. It was the first time. I mean, I had been a movie fan since I was a kid and learned to read at a young age just so I could find out, you know, read the television listings to see when movies were playing, what movies were playing this week on television. And it was really then that I it was the first time, you know, I, I, I bought magazines to find out, well, who is George Lucas? Who is Anthony Daniels? Right. Sir Alec Guinness, right? Like, I was interested in the behind the scenes of the making of that film. And, and Star Wars was revolutionary for a couple of reasons. One, it stood in contrast to all the dark, you know, negative, very, you know, there was a lot of, America was dealing with some stuff in the 70s, in the hangover of the Nixon administration and you know, the the Vietnam War and whatnot. And Star Wars was like, yeah, we're just going to do a fun movie for boys and girls that's a modern fairy tale, uh, a, a space fantasy, a, a space opera, as it were. So it stood in contrast. And it also utilized nearly every technical, tech, nearly every special effects technique you could possibly imagine, everything from forced perspective, matte paintings, makeup effects, um, and then in in inventing effects so that's what got me the bug and then i started making super eight films as a kid i made them through junior high 
high school and even college. I made a, a feature length 16 millimeter movie with a Canon scoop it. I oh, never wow. released it. And I, yeah, I never released it. It was called the cool teenager from the planet X. It was <laughs> just as pretentious <laughs> and awful as you can imagine. It was bad, but um, <laughs> a lot of like stop motion animated movies. I was just always making movies. And when I went to, I was at Wayne state university. This was in the eighties. And, um, you know, I was just, you know, young, full, full of uh, piss, vinegar, and pointless arrogance. And there were a lot of punk rock fanzines at the time. And I had seen the movie Dune by uh, David Lynch. And I loved that book growing up. That book changed my life. It was amazing, the very first book. And when I saw the movie, I was really disappointed. I mean, I've since grown to love it and appreciate it. There's a three-hour version on YouTube that is a recut that is phenomenal. It's closer to the vision of what David Lynch was trying to achieve. Uh, but having seen that film, it just I was so colossally disappointed that a filmmaker, David Lynch, who I love and respect from Eraserhead and, and so many other things, um, I was angry. And so I started, I came up, I, literally the name popped into my head, film threat. It sounded punk rock. And it was, it was your response to that movie. It was my response to that movie. I mean, I did a little, this is before Photoshop. I did a little thing and I took the, I took the logo for the movie Dune and I, I, I made it say dumb. And uh, <laughs> I was just angry about it, you know, like, but it was, you know, look, the film threat was this Xerox. It, it sort of evolved and, and evolved into from different mediums, right? It was, you know, a Xerox fanzine that uh, I did with a college buddy named Andre Seawood. Then it evolved into sort of this more professionally slick magazine. I was just using money from my day job. Then I sold it to Larry Flint in the early 90s and he published it for a bit. Then I got the rights back, turned it into a, believe it or not, an email newsletter for like a year. Then it was a website. We're talking about HTML 1.0. And evolved from that, then did a YouTube channel. But through the one thing I noticed through all these mediums is any new medium is attacked by the old media. Oh, yeah. So, like when I was doing film sort as a punk rock fanzine, I would break like national stories and never get credit. I was just, you know, oh, you're just a fanzine. Oh, you're this like punk rock magazine. Oh, you're just doing a website. It's like, oh, you're just doing a YouTube channel. Every time i have evolved film thread from one media to another i feel like i you know the old media or the establishment media uh tries to discredit it and so i've learned very on early on to not really trust your mainstream media i'm gen x i don't know how old you are jeff but uh i'm i'm gen x i'm the punk rock gen x generation that doesn't give an f you know <laughs> i don't you know well okay fine call me names you know i learned on the playground there was a little you know a, a little jingle about that on the playground names will never hurt me so go right ahead do your worst um see i've never cared about stuff like that um you know i i care about having conversation i enjoy engaging in conversation with people i disagree with because it's an opportunity for me to learn something. Sure. I've always felt that way in everything that I've done, you know, like, oh, that's cool. Like I, for years, read critics who I disagreed with and hated their reviews, but I loved being challenged. I love my own ideas being challenged. 
And I like that. I think that's healthy to have your ideas challenged. And, you know, sometimes my mind has changed or my mind is open to something. It's interesting. I didn't see it from that perspective, which is why I've always, with Film Thread, tried to have, I mean, the kind of diversity that people focus on today is is just surface level kind of cosmetic BS and for virtue signaling. I'd, I've always cared about just the diverse voices, you know? Right, right. I like to get different people's perspectives on all sides of the equation to kind of like, well, what do you think of this film? You know, like, and I, I like that. I like it to me. Film is, and Roger Ebert's the one who said this, talking about movies is a gateway to talking about anything. Talking about love, talking about life, talking about loss, talking about challenges, and those things are universal. There's this dumb idea that has somehow made its way into the zeitgeist, which I hope goes away, where someone needs to look like you in order for you to be able to identify with that person and I just think that that's a false premise. It's a terrible concept. The idea that someone must look exactly like me, be the same gender, the same ethnicity, approximately the same age, for me to identify with that person. When I first saw the movie Alien, directed by Ridley Scott, uh, starring Sigourney Weaver in 1979, I saw that film in a theater. Well, I identified with Ripley because she was the smartest. She was the one that said, Kane should not be allowed in that's breaking protocol she was warning they she warned against every stupid mistake they made which led to the demise of the crew of the nostromo so um i think that uh and i grew up watching well i'm gonna okay this might discredit everything i just <laughs> um i grew up watching a lot of ultraman and Johnny, i remember that i remember I that it. Johnny Sacco and his giant robot. I grow up watching the Toho uh, films uh, directed by Honda. Those were brilliant. They're brilliant. Brilliant. I, you know, nobody looked like me in those movies. I mean, maybe with the exception of Russ Tamblin or or uh, Nick Adams, but I didn't care because I really wanted a wristwatch that could control a giant robot. That was Johnny <laughs> Sacco. Um, and I also I grew up watching a lot of. Um, independent and foreign films. My mother, uh, who really influenced my, um, she influenced my movie, my movie going. She was said, look, don't go to the mall to see those mall movies. Okay. You need to go to the art house. You need to go to the Detroit Institute of Arts where they're doing a retrospective and you can see this movie directed by Jim Jarmusch. It's in black and white. Go see that movie. Wow. And how old? How old were you then? I mean, that's, that's well, pretty I awesome. Teenager. I was a teenager. And then- Wow, you know, what, look, what great got, advice. Well, I got a car when I was 16, not because I wanted to get laid, but because I wanted to go see the movies. I would, I had a car when I was 14. I was dying to turn 16. I was a terrible <laughs> driver at the beginning, but I just wanted to go to the movie theater and I would look at the newspaper and I would see every movie that opened that weekend. It was playing, the Detroit Institute of Arts was playing a movie. They're playing a French film. Then I would go see, I would go to the Punch and Judy theater. I would see a movie there. Then I would go to the mall. And of course I did what every person does. You get a ticket to one movie and you see four. <laughs> uh, I would see every movie that, I would see every movie that opened every weekend. 
And I even at, at the end of high school, I could have graduated school early, but I didn't. But I uh, but I had I was able to work it where I had Friday afternoons off for school. So I worked a lot of odd jobs to be able to pay for all this nonsense. But um, yeah, this so this dumb idea that has been popularized, which I think is terrible, which is you have to look like someone. Now, I believe inclusion is important. Absolutely. Inclusion, diversity, important. But people that talk about film today act like that's a new idea. Act like, you know, Yafet Koto did not play, that did not appear in Alien or many other great, you know, black actors in the 70s. They act like this is a new concept. The dumb concept is that you must look like the person who is the protagonist to be able to identify. And I think that's weak because for this reason, all fiction, all fiction, whether it's uh, novels, whether it's comic books, whether it's video games or a movie, it's all about empathy. It's all about identifying as the protagonist, whether that protagonist looks like you, is the same age, it's a different era, say different gender. Um, you know, I saw Gone it, with the Wind. I saw Gone with the Wind. I identified with Scarlett O'Hara and her journey. Okay, I think she made some bad choices. Okay, <laughs> she ain't eaten a dirty turnip. But, um, you know, I've had some experiences in my life where, you know, I picked a metaphorical turnip out of the ground and held it towards the sky and said to myself, I'll never go hungry again. You know, so... Those are transformative experiences. But the point of fiction, all fiction of all types, is to teach you about empathy. Because I want to see the world through someone else's eyes. Not my own. I can look in the mirror and see myself all day. I'm kind of bored. But, uh, you know, uh, but so the, and and the learning that lesson, being able to see the world through someone else's eyes and learn from their experiences, which are different from your own is is an is an opportunity to gr for growth in life so i just see a lot of ideas today mostly film twitter i think um i see a lot of bad ideas and i see a lot i a lot of bad ideas popularized for the wrong reasons i see them i see these ideas are very divisive and i, I i'm not about it i've always been kind of a uh, you know i stand in contrast i mean there look there are people that are my detractors. There are people that have tried to cancel me. I just, whenever anyone has tried to cancel, I just, if I just don't look at Twitter for two or three days, they shut up and go away. Because they get <laughs> bored. They get bored and they go on to the next thing. So I, I think that, that that in particular is the worst idea. You know, I don't I don't think in, I don't think inclu inclusion if it's organic is good, but right. it shouldn't be a requirement. And it should not be a checkbox to be, you know, uh, eligible for awards. And by the, by by that measure, you know, the film Parasite should not have been nominated. It's look, I, I watch Korean films all the time. They're not very diverse. They don't care. And neither do I. Uh, you know, I don't know this. This whole idea that everything's got to be a rainbow coalition is misguided. And in many ways, it's destructive and moronic because... It doesn't give filmmakers the freedom to just, you know what? There are no white people in this movie at all. Fine. Great. Or you know what? This film is made in a certain era. 
it's just only going to be white people. Who cares? Who cares? Tell a great story. Yeah, if you're if you're immersed in the story, it shouldn't matter. It doesn't. It shouldn't matter. But again, this is the point of fiction: is to learn empathy. Period. That that it's what it's for. So, I mean, look. Although I'll just say this: whenever I play a video game, I always choose a female character. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> So I want to look at a woman played cyberpunk 2077 and a very attractive woman. When I play street fighter two, I play, I choose Chun Li. Uh, what can I say? You know, I don't know. I'm sure they'll, you know, I don't know. Like is if I care, I don't really care. but I just <laughs> thought of wasted time on social media. I had an experience uh, years ago where I was just like, why am I, I, I thought to myself, I, I was in some dumb fight with someone on, on Facebook, I think this might have been around 2018 or so. And I thought to myself, I have written, because I know, because I've written several books. I know how many words are in your, your average book has between 50 to 60,000 words. And I thought to myself, in a month, I might have written that many words on Facebook. And I stopped posting on Facebook around 2018. I And it, and it wasn't like, look, I think I think social media has, turned everyone into an a-hole and um, <laughs> our worst aspects come out and we've lost the ability to converse face to face here you and i are we're not face to face though we've met we spent time together we broke bread or beer uh maybe more beer than bread <laughs> but uh you know uh we we've lost that ability in such a short time it's shocking how quickly it happened uh, that, that we lost the ability ability to just have empathy for fellow Americans. I'm shocked I, I that I see my friends say on social media about people that they see on some opposite side of the political aisle. And and um, these are these are fellow Americans, and I care about what they're going through right now. And I think that if we can find a way to converse with each other online, respectfully and find a way find a way to actually you know compromise in spite of differences we might be able to actually solve real problems instead of vilifying each other so um so there you go sorry i uh i will now step off the soapbox <laughs> well yeah. well that actually brings me to a question because um you know with the landscape of social media and 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 all the things we have available to us, like these podcasts and, and you know, online uh, film criticism and so forth. How do you think that's affected, you know, film criticism as as an art form? Well, a couple of things. It's actually made it more accessible. Anyone can start a social media feed where they talk about movies or, you know, a Substack or whatever, um, or, you know, uh, pick up a ring light, a microphone, and go on YouTube. I love the democratization. What I, what I, and I think that there are three, there are really three things you need to be a voice in film. And I see two, two of those aspects plentiful, and the third one is very rare. So the first two are the first is passion. There's no shortage of passion. If you're writing about film, you're probably not getting paid very much. I know because I do pay writers. We don't pay very much at Film Threat. Uh, but, you know, passion, no shortage of that. If you're going to take the time to do it, you've got passion. The second thing is you do need skill. 
And there are different skills. As a writer, you need grammatical skill, need to be, you know, uh, just be a solid writer. That takes practice. If you're on YouTube or you're doing a podcast, you need to be articulate. You need to be have at least some sort of level of charisma on camera uh, if you're on if you're on YouTube or doing a podcast or whatnot. And that's a different skill than writing. The third thing, which is rare, is knowledge of film history. So if you get out of Transformers Rise of the Beasts and you say, this is the best movie I've ever seen, I would say to that person, you haven't seen a lot of movies. Probably need to see a few more movies. So, um, I mean, would depend on the age of that person. But but I think having a sense of film history, um, different world cinema, cinema from different parts of the world, not just understanding, you know, Asian cinema, you can throw out as a term, but there are many different, you know, there's Chinese film, Japanese film, uh, South Korean. Look, there's a North Korean film named Pulgasar. It's a giant monster movie um, made by uh, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-il, the Kim Jong-un's uh, fa- father who made that film, but he kidnapped the director from South Korea to make that movie. I believe Pulgasar is on, um, it's on YouTube. You can watch it for free. It's bizarre. Um, but there are many different types of world cinema when you drill down. And it's important to at least have know the basics of some of those. You'll learn a lot. You'll go down rabbit holes discovering different filmmakers and whatnot. So um, I love that. I can't profess to know everything. I'm always learning, which is why I always love the collective conversation. Not everyone can know everything, but we can certainly sit down and, you know, have conversation where we have areas of intersection in terms of films we've seen and liked. I I love to find the areas of disagreement because it's sort of like a challenge. Like, I'm going to show you my Kung Fu. Show me your Kung Fu. You know, like, let's see how much you know. Let's go. It's, uh, I love it. I love, it's a, it's a conversation that we're all having together. I would also add to that list, uh, I think, a unique voice. I think the the critics that I like to read yeah. just bring a different voice to the review, if that makes sense. And yes. I, I think you've done that. And I'm I'm curious how... And it's probably more subconscious than conscious, but I'm I'm curious. As you've written over the years, do you think about that? How, how did you how did you create your uh, voice in terms of film threat? In terms of creating my voice for film threat, it was never done consciously. I just I think I was a weird kid growing up, um, not in a bad way necessarily, but I was an indoor kid watched movies was my life from when I was a kid I used to watch monster movies late night this is even before Star Wars came out and when Star Wars came out that changed everything I wanted to learn about making films and then uh, so I was more of an indoor kid I had newspaper routes when I was a kid because I needed money to be able to buy an Aurora model kit or a copy of Starlog magazine or famous monsters so I was a weird kid to begin with or to even buy a film super 8 film to be able to make movies with my Canon 310XL, which had, you know, single frame advance so I could make stop motion movies. Um, So I was a weird kid growing up, but I didn't necessarily, like, I didn't know I was poor. I was just always working jobs. If I wanted something, I had to work a job. Things weren't handed to me. I didn't know I was poor until I got into high school. I just, everybody, every kid just had two pairs of pants. For every kid, you just, you know, 
had like a, I didn't have a lot of clothes. Then I noticed like a lot of the kids in high school were like going. They were in the ski club, right? And I was like, oh, it's that's oh that costs money. My mom tried to explain to me the ski club. You know, I was brought up by a single mom, and um, you know that's just that's also was maybe less common when I grew up. It's it's pretty much most common these days, but uh, not common then. Uh, but I was loved, so I never noticed because I didn't. Money just, and maybe even to this day, I care maybe less about money than I should uh, because I was loved and cared for by my family. And I guarantee there were some kids that had a lot more money than I did who probably were loved less. That's all I'll say. But I used to go see John Hughes movies and I wondered to myself, I can't relate to these characters. They were about rich suburban kids in Chicago and I did not like them. I think the only movie I liked that John Hughes did was Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Good picture. And he was uh he was a disruptor. He was a disruptor. And he got away with stuff. And he was always trying to like, I, I liked Ferris Bueller, but I didn't like almost any other movie that 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 John Hughes did. It's like, well, maybe Breakfast Club has some things, but those were the movies that that were kind of pushed when I was in high school, those movies of the 80s, all those typical movies. And um, I just didn't find myself relating to those characters as much as, say, my peers in school did. And that made me kind of an outsider. I was the weird kid that was like going to see like a James Dean retrospective or a John Waters film festival at the age of 16, which probably scarred me. So not only was I seeing a lot of weird movies, I was seeing movies that my, you know, the, the kids I hung out with in school didn't have any interest in. And I was going to these movies alone. And uh, didn't mind it. I had a great time. I, you know, but um, you know, I was giving it was in my sort of self education in movies. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of like where. So I don't know. I guess I developed my voice. I think later I've gotten better at it. I can't say that I've ever been good. Um, I'm probably, um, but I probably think that I'm better at speaking about film than writing about it. Writing is more of a challenge for me these days. I don't do it as much as, as often as I should, but uh, I love the conversation and I love when I'll find someone that like, Oh, you're saying what, how dare you say this? Like, let's talk, you know? Um, but I always love the conversation. Yeah. So even before we knew you were coming on the show, Jeff has talked very highly of you. And one of the things he's always said is that you were very ahead of the curve when it came to turning Film Threat into an online website and forum. And so as someone who was kind of ahead of the pack once before, where are your current sights set when it comes to the film and media landscape and what people should be preparing for in the future? Oh, wow, good question. Uh, well, what I want to do is, see, I think Hollywood is going through something right now. I think streaming was straight the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for streaming isn't there it doesn't exist and the small residuals that are being received by members of uh you know sag and the the writers guild uh that's just the harsh reality of the dollars that are out there and the studio heads speak out of like two sides of their mouth one side is they say to their stockholders, we're making so much money. The other side is really not making that much money when it comes to the residuals, which I believe is closer to the truth. Indie film has always been a struggle. So what my uh, personal mission 
is and has been has not changed since I started Film Threat was to say, look, movies made by Hollywood are garbage. They were garbage for different reasons when I was growing up, right? When I was growing up, there were different reasons that movies were bad back then. They're bad today for other reasons, okay? Uh, but um, what I've always said is you need to look beyond. You need to diversify your media intake. How do you mean exactly? Yeah, tell me what you mean. What, what I mean by that is, is like, go ahead and go and see uh, the new Indiana Jones movie. There's nothing wrong with that. Then go see a movie like The Lesson with Richard E. Grant, uh, an independent film. You need to have a balanced media diet so you're not only seeing the big Hollywood tentpole blockbusters you balance that media diet with, you know, films uh, made outside of the United States, small independent films uh, released through companies like IFC. You know, I mean, A24 is a division of Warner Brothers, actually, uh, but they have very exceptional taste when it comes to curating the types of films they release. Even a movie like a, I'm not an elitist about this stuff. I love movies that come from trauma or full moon entertainment. <laughs> Charlie Band, Charlie Band and um, Lloyd Kaufman are heroes of mine. They're independent filmmakers. So you need to balance your diet from like, you know, to me going to the movies to see a big Hollywood blockbuster film, like a mission impossible or whatever. That's like going to McDonald's. You know, I have a craving and look, don't get me wrong. I'm no snob, even though I'm, I know Morgan Spurlock. I know that guy friends with him. Um, I'll still eat McDonald's. You know, it's it's a guilty pleasure a couple times a month. Uh, I don't eat it, you know, frequently for every, that would be bad. But like, that's to me what going to see a, a big blockbuster is. But then look, you can't live on that. I, eventually I want to go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and I'll, you know, see an indie film that's a bit more challenging. So, or like probably my, my favorite movie of last year was RRR. I oh, thought yeah. with, Phenomenal. I mean, and not the version that was on, um, the version that was on Netflix was in Hindi. The native language is Telugu. They're about, if my understanding, look, I'm not speaking with any expertise here, learning as I go. Uh, it's, uh, it was made in Telugu, and which is different than about seven dominant languages in India. Um, and they have competing, it's not like the United States. There is one film industry, Hollywood. And then there are little pockets of, you know, small indie films all over the place. Um, but uh, India is such a vast continent. They have multiple uh, industries and they compete and it's a friendly competition. But SS Rajamouli, who I had the opportunity to meet several times, and I saw RRR eight times in a theater in Telugu, which is the native language it was shot in, um, and, and the actors uh, speak in that language, I thought was fantastic. I, I, Hollywood can't make a movie that entertaining oh and by the way the characters don't look like me but i understand their challenges uh they, from the beginning i understand you know their goals and what their wants and i love that that's that's i think is a that's a more valuable lesson than pushing this nonsense idea i mean i was joking with a friend that at some point we're going to get we're going to reach a stage technologically speaking where you're going to put on the movie star wars and you're just going to be able to make 
Luke Skywalker. You're going to be able to replace Luke Skywalker with you, your face, your ethnicity, your age, your gender. Just show me the Star Wars movie, but I'm the star. This is how narcissistic and stupid that we become. <laughs> um, and that technology is not far off, by the way. I believe that that will happen in my lifetime. Wow. 100, and I'm freaking old. So, but I 100% with AI and deep fake, it's like, oh yeah, you're going to get this sort of Star Wars experience where you put your face, they've already got where you can do deep fake with your, your face in a scene from a movie, right? But now you're going to be able to do it with a whole movie and you'll pay for that experience. And it's, I think that's a terrible thing. I think it's, I think, it, I think it's a bad idea, but I guarantee it's going to happen. But it'll probably happen after George Lucas passes away, unfortunately. So there you are. Yeah. So as Jeff said, uh, towards the top of the show, your uh, film Attack of the Dock is now available in collector's edition. You've got deleted scenes, commentary for the movie, extended interviews. Could you tell us a little bit more about that project? Yeah. And it ties into something I was talking about earlier. Attack of the Dock is a documentary about a television show that I was on for almost eight years called Attack of the Show. It was on our network called G4 TV, which was groundbreaking at the time. It was launched on April 24th, 2002. And it, it launched and for two weeks. All they had was the image of Pong being played on screen. Eventually, they had programming all related to video games and then television shows like X-Play, which starred Adam Sessler and Morgan Webb. And they reviewed video games. It was a video game review show. This is before YouTube. And it was on a, a network called Tech TV. And Tech TV merged with G4 TV and they created a show called Attack of the Show, which was an evolution of a show called The Screensavers, which I was on actually three episodes of The Screensavers. So um, the show was groundbreaking. This was, you know, we take it for granted today. You can go to Target and get a Marvel or a Star Wars t-shirt. When I grew up, I was teased for being a nerd I was teased for collecting comics. I hid my long boxes of comics in shame because I was a geek. But tracking with the rise of the nerd was this network called G4 TV. Because when I first started, nerds were not cool. There were no Marvel movies. There was no tech to that connected us. Now it separates us as much as it connects us. That's a whole other conversation. But... What I wanted to do through this documentary was not only tell the story of this of this program, not only for fans of the show, for pe but for people who'd never heard of it, but also remind people of a time when we were less divided, not only in fandoms, but as a country. So, I mean, I, it's not super, the movie is not super luxury or hit you over the head. It's a thread through throughout the film. The movie, I hope, is funny and entertaining and reminds you of an era that um, uh, when television was just fun, there is a thread where, uh, in fact, Zach Selwyn does some songs in the in the documentary talking about you can't do that no more. And there is a whole thread of things that happen in the documentary that on any given day on, a, on an episode of Attack of the Show, we would do something that would get, today get you canceled. Kevin and Olivia... Kevin Pereira and Olivia Munn were the hosts. Um, I was on the show like once or twice a week and I was a backup co-host if they ever needed me. And um, they did crazy stuff. Sometimes 
I was a part of the sketches. It was really fun. So I was a fan of the show. So I had one foot out, one foot in because I was on the show. And the documentary is a, like a loving tribute to it. The The DVD, the Blu-ray, which you can get at Attack of the Doc, that's Attack of the DOC.com. Um, you can just Google it, social media, all that stuff. It's easy to find. Uh, it's, it's, there's 28 and a half hours of extras on it, Easter eggs, um, extended interviews with every single interview subject, um, more than 20 hours of interviews. I mean, it's, I'm proud of it. It's, I mean, it's a 90 minute documentary. That's like a, a window into a time that was not that long ago. It was no. less than like 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago is when attack of the show went off the air. And, uh, I wanted to remind people like, Hey, you know, 10 years ago, we weren't trying to cancel our neighbor for liking a tweet or the moronic stuff that people get riled up about. You know, we just had a conversation. We'd laugh At the end of the day, end of the day, we'd walk away from it. But I've seen the culture get, um, it's become unhealthy. And I see how it's like, thankfully, I have two kids that are grown adults. They're in their 20s. They don't care about social media, but you know they have challenges with relationships and and friends. And I see a generation raised by television and social media, uh, and um, and the internet. And I think uh, I think we may need to take a look at all of this. We may come to find out that at least for young kids, you know, using social media, that using social media as a teenager might be as destructive as smoking. In, in terms of your health. Um, I mean, there's a really good documentary on uh, Netflix called The Social Dilemma that's about that that very subject uh, that played at Sundance. Uh, so I care about these things, but also I want to make you laugh. So while I'm sitting here, you know, telling you all these, you know, high-minded aspirations I have for the doc, you know, this is also a documentary where the two hosts jump into the world's largest cream pie. Okay. Um, and it's in the trailer. So, uh, you know, like, look, I like to, and look, I, I've done this throughout my career with film threat. I, there's usually a serious point in what I'm trying to say, but I say it in a way where I'm tricking you into learning, into, to hearing my, hearing my point. And I'm not trying to tell you what to think. I don't think, I think with the best movies, the best stories, the best best storytelling doesn't tell you what to think the best storytelling makes you question as a person you question maybe how you feel about a topic you question maybe even the way you've lived your life so the the best films i think question they don't lecture the problem is now you've got um you've got a lot of people they're like the sides have become so polarized you've got a whole generation like lecturing in movies. I mean, they just don't, it used to be that subtext was a big part of films. There's a lot of subtext in some of the greatest films. Um, but I would say that if you release the movie Dances with Wolves, which won Best Picture, directed by Kevin Costner, people would say it's woke. I mean, there's ideas in it, but I don't consider that film overtly woke. Uh, and I think that there's sort of like these lenses where, you know, one side of the political spectrum says everything is racist. And then another side of the political set spectrum is saying everything is woke. And I say they're both, both of those are wrong. 
not everything is. And I think, but I do, I do get annoyed when I see such overt lecturing in particular coming from Hollywood. I think that's the last thing Hollywood should be doing is lecturing. Tell me a story, entertain. If there's some ideas in there that give me something to think about later, good. The best films do that. Um, but uh, we're in this really bizarre polarized place. And I see the sort of two extremes of the spectrum are very similar, oddly. They're very similar. Well, the other thing is, I think that you know, just from a just from a, a a creative or a craft standpoint, if you want to put it that way, when I'm watching a movie and suddenly I hear the writer talking, it takes me out of the movie. Yeah. And so uh, I think a lot of times when you try to inject, you know, ideas that aren't really germane to the film, I just I I, I get taken out of the plot, and so it's just not as enjoyable. Yeah, I I think the modern writers one, the problem with modern writers is they aren't influenced by other types of art or they aren't influenced by experience they're influenced by other movies and media and then what they do is i would say modern writers are almost like what ai would produce because it's just a copy <laughs> i'm not joking it's just a copy but i'm gonna add my ideas in here and i'm gonna take all that stuff that i was indoctrinated uh in with it when i was in college and I'm just going to put it right there on the surface. I'm just going to say it out loud. And it's stupid. The best writers never did that. And the best writers were influenced by life. You know, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, they were in World War II. Um, uh, you know, uh, Gene Roddenberry survived a plane crash and was also in the military. The, they had lived some life before they became writers. And... They were influenced by, influenced and respected and respected, very important, respected what came before, would never seek to tear it down. But because modern writers are incapable of creating anything new that resonates, they must throw the skin of the, of some pre-existing property or, uh, you know, some IP, they throw the skin on some BS story that they think they came up with when it's just influenced by whatever. You know, there'll never be an original Star Wars movie because Star Wars, the first Star Wars, was influenced by everything that came before. It was influenced by Marvel Comics in the 60s, Doctor Doom, very much like Darth Vader. It was influenced by movie serials of the 1930s starring Buster Crabbe, like Flash Gordon. It was influenced by Westerns of the 1950s. It had all these influences that George Lucas threw in a blender and he made something wholly original and now modern writers today modern filmmakers are influenced by just what everything that came before and when i say came before what came before in the last five years which is a terrible copy so now we're at this place now where there's it's expect it's it's we're, we're we're at a place where we're losing our identity as the culture becomes more fractured i mean i think there are more genres of music than there are people reviewing music the pieces oh. of the pie are divided into so many. I always love when I hear like, oh, that's a new genre of music. Okay, flip trop or whatever. That's a genre. Okay, fine, whatever. I was watching all the, the uh, coverage of Coachella via YouTube uh, one weekend and realized I didn't realize there were so many genres of music. This is interesting. We've run out of band names. You know, like it's funny. 
it's like we've reached the end of pop culture. But I do believe in originality. I do believe that, you know, uh, experimenting with things like making a feature on an iPhone, trying and failing, um, these are good things. Uh, I think I think I want to see indie film like that's I, I'll look I'll always support an indie film that tries and fails because I look on indie film because I'll say this Hollywood has no excuse to fail. They have all the money in the world. They have all the technicians, wardrobe, hair, makeup, special effects, directors of photography, everyone who's a professional at the top of their game. OK, there's no excuse for a Hollywood movie to fail. Every Hollywood movie should be amazing. Indie movies don't have those resources. So I always look on an indie film like a bird with a broken wing. And I want to see that bird fly and be free and take flight and go the distance. I, that's what I want to see in spite of its flaws. And there might be a weak actor here or maybe they didn't have a lot of money for color correction or you can see the weaknesses, the, but the roughness behind the edges, having been fortunate to see a lot of the early films of some filmmakers like, say, a Richard Linklater, who is probably one of my all-time favorite filmmakers uh, from Austin, Texas. Love Richard. Um, he's always trying to do something different. He's always, I love that about Richard. He's, you know, uh, I love that kind of experimentation. Well, I'm curious what what kind of advice you would give you know young filmmakers because obviously you're a film fan, um, you're an advocate for indie film, you, you know you've started your own business with Film Threat, which is kind of what a filmmaker does. They're kind of starting their own business when they're trying to go out there and make their movie. What do you think? I, I mean, what would your advice be? Is it is it originality? Is it just chutzpah? What what do you think? God, I don't know. Like I've been working on this Film Threat documentary for ten years. I I, I hope I finish it this year. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, like it's, I really think it's, uh, trying and failing, not being afraid to fail, but not being too, really being able to take criticism as well. And being your, uh, a, 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 a critic of your own work. I think it's, I think it's important, um, to be able to look at your own work. I think that's where like, I'm very, very critical of my own stuff, which can, can, can also be a burden because I'm questioning myself. Well, should we do this or let's try that? Or what's a better way to tell this story? Because I didn't want attack of the doc to turn out to be just a talking heads. Hey, I'm interviewing a bunch of people who aren't famous. Watch this. Why would you watch that? You know? So I took a different approach with the doc and it's, it's an archival documentary. And then we used animation to kind of fill in the gaps, but I would say, you know, best advice is experiment. Don't be afraid to fail and, uh, and, you know, learn, 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 learn the craft from all sides. And, you know, you may not be directing may not be for you. It's the thing that everyone wants to be There's a lot of different, you know, you could be a producer, you could be a writer, you can be the money guy who work in marketing. There's a lot of different roles in film. So find the space where you feel the most comfortable and, uh, you know, don't give up. But I would say this, though. John Waters had a great quote. He said, do something for 10 years. If you have no success after 10 years, you might want to consider another position. You might want to consider <laughs> another job. But, uh, you know, if you do something 10 years, and you kind of see success. I made a film here. I did this like, and, you know, keep going. I think 
the biggest mistake people move make is they quit right as it, you know they're they're toward the finish line. I mean, I felt that way a year ago when I just was still working on Attack of the Dock and like, oh man, are we ever going to lock picture? This thing is so tough. This isn't working. This sucks. The third act needed be, to be restructured. And it was like just powering through. And um, I think it was worth it in the end. Well, Chris, I know uh, we want to be respectful of your time. I think you're heading to a premiere here shortly, I think. So uh, um, just wanted to thank you for being on the show. You have great advice, great insight. I've, I've always been a Film Threat fan ever since uh, my friend Merle was writing for you. So um, keep up the good work. Keep the reviews going. And uh, where can folks find uh, Attack of the Dock? Well, you can go to Attack of the Dock. That's D-O-C. It's on Instagram, Twitter. There's a website, attackofthedoc.com. You can find me, that Chris Gore. Or you can, my media outlet, which is a group of 30 writers with very different voices, not all of us agree, Film Threat. So go to filmthreat.com, Film Threat on all social media. Well, that sounds great. Well, enjoy the movie tonight. And uh, next time you're in Austin, uh, hit me up. I will. Thank you so much for having me on the show, uh, Jeff and, and Andrew. I, I really appreciate it. All right. You take care, buddy. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Melody Lopez. Our theme music was composed by a man who shaves with Occam's razor, Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.